will be in Hosea chapter 4, if you'll turn there, starting in verse 11. There's a lot of things that we buy and we store in case of emergency. Uh, In your boot, there is a spare tire, a tire iron, and a jack, just in case you get a flat tire. Um, Have you ever had a flat tire and then you said, there should be a spare somewhere here. You never even looked and lo and behold, there's no spare or there's no jack or the the wrench doesn't actually fit the lugs. Um, Yeah, we buy fire extinguishers and fire blankets just in case there's a fire. If if the fire has already started, it's a little late to go leave and go get a fire extinguisher, right? Go down to Bunnings. uh, It's a little late at that point. We get traveler's insurance in case we get sick, in case our bags are lost. Uh, We stock our pantry and our fridge with the future in mind. And it's not because we're going to have it for dinner tomorrow, but just in the future, because we will need it. And the problem was, in Hosea's day, that God, God was being treated by people like in case of emergency. He was something that they just put in the background And they went about their lives, and they had other things that they looked to and trusted. And if things got really bad, then they'd turn to God. But he wasn't the one they sought. He wasn't the one they relied upon. They they had a sense of security with him as a backup, but they had no relationship with him and because they didn't know him. And when when we neglect our daily relationship with the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised when communication is silent when we're not really hearing from God because we haven't been asking God anything. We haven't been seeking him. Our relationship with God can be like you've had, that, you've, you've had a blowout on a dark road late at night and you open up the boot and you find out the tire's flat because there, there's been some neglect there. It's not that you wouldn't blame the spare, right? You say, man, I should have filled it with air. And we need the Holy Spirit, that pneuma, the air. We need the Lord to be filling our lives and guiding and directing us continually, relying upon him, not just having him in case, just in case, but because we need him today for our life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the faithful one, that you are eternal, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, and that you are, you're not just aware of our needs, but you seek to meet them. And you want us to meet with you, to desire you, to recognize our need for you. And I pray, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be enlightened, that our, our hard hearts would be soft before you, that our forgetfulness would be brought to mind, that we, we can forget about you and just go through life and miss out on a relationship with you that you desire to have with us, that you've given everything through Jesus Christ for us, Lord, help us to respond to your love and to be moved by it, to seek you and to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. God's lament was that the children of Israel did not know him. He says, you don't know me, you're not following me, you're perishing for the lack of knowledge because you don't know me, you're not walking in my ways. And so God allowed trials. He allowed them to be destroyed by their enemies. So city by city was being wiped out. And he allowed them to suffer famine and lack so that they would realize we need God. We need God 
to protect us. We need God to provide for us. It was in their wealth and in their prosperity that they forgot the Lord and they began to um, live as the nations around them. And God said that he would make their efforts fruitless in Hosea 4.10. He says, For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. And because they ceased obeying the Lord, he was going to let them alone. He was going to give them the space. They had moved from him and so he would back off and allow them to suffer the consequences of sin so that they might realize their need for God and restoration. They were destroying themselves, but he was going to give them salvation. They just needed to come to him, and it was going to be pain and trials that alerted them to their need. We continue in Hosea 4.11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and brides commit adultery. God had said, like people, like priest. The priest had walked away from the Lord and he said, the more priests there are, you would think it'd be a more godly nation. But because they're following after the wisdom of men, there's actually, it's more sinful with more priests. And the people, they're not following God either. They saw the worshiping God as a means of gain, how they could profit themselves. They committed adultery in the worship of false gods, so drunkenness and sexual sin, that was all tied together with idolatry. There's two different words for wine here, the yayin and tirosh. Now the yayin, that was the undiluted fermented wine, and the tirosh was the sweet grape juice not yet per fermented. And uh, wine was... a a normal part of everyday life in Israel. It was in commonly had during meals and during the feasts that God had ordained. Uh, uh, even mourning, that was part of it. And the good things God gives, they turn sour when we're enslaved by them. Because God's people, they had gone away after wine. God gave them wine, but their hearts, their affections turned there. And so people made sex and drinking alcohol and empty religion and self, the gods they pursued, the things they worshiped, the things they looked toward rather than to the Lord who gave them everything. And this spiritual adultery led toward harlotry. Their hearts were going after all these false gods and they looked to get for their idols to give them direction. We have an, a good example in Ezekiel 21, 21 of King Nebuchadnezzar. It says, for the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road at the fork of the two roads to use divination, he shakes the arrows, he consults the images, he looks at the liver. So he comes to a fork in the road and he's like, which way do the gods want me to go? And he'd take his arrows and he'd throw them in the air and if they were all pointing one way, he would go that way. If they were pointing the other way, he'd go the other way. If they were pointing in the opposite direction, he'd just turn around and go home because he believed that the gods were, were directing him and guiding him. So he was consulting the images. They would, they would cut open an animal and look at the liver. And, oh, this is a bad omen. No, you should not continue. Okay, so they'd go a different way. And so the, they, it was kind of like, you guys ever have one of those like eight balls where you kind of like ask a question, like in Toy Story, and you look at it, and it, ah, you shake it and get a different answer. Well, they were using divination. They weren't seeking the Lord. They were just talking to sticks 
They were letting the stick guide their path rather than God. They started doing what the nations were, sacrificing to idols, burning incense on the hills. It's kind of like when we have bad reception in this building. It, back in the recesses of the building, we have poor reception. It's a concrete building. So we go outside to get better reception. And it's like, hey, the gods will hear us better if we're in a shady spot. That's, that's where the spirits like to be. Or a higher place. That'll get the message through. So they were just going to the, the next place to worship their idols so that they would be heard, so that they'd be enriched, so that they'd benefit. And it would be easy to, to blame idols or their neighbors or these pagan influences around them. Uh, trees, mountains, like it's the mountain's fault. No, it was the people's fault because their heart was drifting from the Lord. God gave them the truth. He gave them his wisdom. He gave them his word. But they chose to go astray and do their own thing. And they only had themselves to blame. It would be like a husband who's committing adultery who's blaming women for his lust. No, it's your lust that's the problem, not the fact that women exist. You need to look at yourself. We have to examine our own hearts. Verse 14, God said, I will punish your daughters. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Both men and women were guilty of spiritual idolatry, the physical adultery as well. And sin had spread throughout the people. It says daughters, brides, and men alike. God didn't just single out the women. He said, hey, he didn't just say boys will be boys. Everyone would have to answer for their own sin. Verse 15 reminds us the words of Hosea, they were primarily aimed at the northern kingdom. But he also addressed Judah. It's like God was speaking to the northern kingdom, but he knew that this letter, these words, would be also read by Judah, and they'd also be read by us. So there's stuff for us to take to heart here. The people of Judah would be tempted because of their neighbors and their relations with the people of the north to enter into worship of their gods, to go to their high places. He's like, Israel's playing the harlot, but Judah, don't join in. Don't be with them. When I was in year 12, and drinking age in the U.S. was 21, I had mates when I was uh, in 12th grade that would go to Mexico where the drinking age was 18. So they'd go down there to drink and, and solicit prostitutes. Um, I also know people who crossed the border because there was cheaper medicine or dental work or for a holiday. So I don't want you to misunderstand. There's, there's beautiful places to visit in Mexico, but the point I want to make is the conditions of the trip, when I went down with the family from Spain to see La Bufadora, which is a blowhole similar to Kayama, on a day trip, that would have been a very different trip than if I had gone during the night with my friends or people I knew from school. I didn't hang with them, but people I knew who went down to Tijuana at night. Right, totally different trip. And so he's like, guys, don't associate with them. It's not going to be good. You'll be led into harlotry as well. 
The conduct of others, the people we surround ourselves with, they will have a corrupting influence on us if it's sinful behavior that they choose. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And we think, oh, I'm kind of impervious now because I have the spirit within me. I have the wisdom of God right here that I can be around things. I can hear things. I can be exposed to things that won't affect me because no weapon that's fashioned against me shall prosper. And we can trot out all these scriptures that would, that would emphasize our standing with the Lord and our strength from the Lord. But if we expose ourselves willingly to these evil influences, they will begin to corrupt us. The way people think and the way they speak will worm its way into our heads and it will begin to impact us. God says, don't be swearing oaths. He wanted them to take note. And he says, For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. It was kind of like God was trying to put the yoke on this young heifer. And it was like backing up. Supposed to walk forward with the yoke, right? Pulling the, uh, the cart or whatever, the threshing that would be happening. But its legs were locked and it would not move forward. Just stubborn. Dug in wanted to go her own way, God led Israel out of Egypt into the land of promise, and in her prosperity, Israel forgot the Lord and went her own way, became stubborn. And because of the stubbornness of God's people, he says, I'll let you forage like a lamb in open country. Now, a cow or a herd of cows could fend off um, potential predators, being a large animal, but a lamb in the open would be completely exposed. No paddock to protect, no shepherd around. And, and maybe that freedom to be out in this open place, you know, all the grass you could eat, and you're like, this is awesome. Well, until night comes, and there's lions and thieves and wild dogs and eagles and all these animals preying on you as a lamb, you have no protection. So he says, if you want to be a stubborn cow, I'll treat you like a lamb in an open place. No protection. You will just be a target and an easy target, vulnerable. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The people of the northern kingdom, they had chosen idolatry, so God would leave them alone. He's like, they've made their choice, leave them alone. This is a grave warning that the wise keep in mind. I like what Matthew Henry writes. He says, the father corrects not the rebellious son anymore when he determines to disinherit him. Those that are not disturbed in their sin will be destroyed for their sin. That's very sobering. Where He's like, okay, I've tried to correct you, I've, but you've been stubborn. You're dug in. You're doing your own thing, so I'll let you go. I'm going to leave you alone. Sometimes we like to be left alone, right? We're like, just leave me alone. But God forbid we'd want to be left alone by God, the one who is our only hope and salvation. We need him. We need God. It says God's people drank rebellion and committed harlotry continually. And in verse 18, it says, their drink, in the King James, it says their drink is sour. So the thing that once intoxicated them 
Wine, if it, depending on how it's stored, it turns to vinegar. So it's like at the beginning, this rebellion, there was a bit of freedom in it, and there was some amount of personal satisfaction they gained from it. However, it was like vinegar that set their teeth on edge, and it would be distasteful. Rulers chosen by God did not honor him. They led the way in transgressing the covenant that God had made. The wind would carry them away like the chaff spoken of in Psalm 1. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Our flesh hates being corrected. Don't you hate being wrong? We, we don't like being wrong. We don't like it being pointed out that we're wrong. We think it's enough that we just know we're wrong. We definitely don't like anyone saying, you're wrong. That's something like, it just it gets us on edge a bit. We don't like it. But the Bible says, don't despise the correction of the Lord because he's treating you like a beloved son. Because if some other person's child is, is out of control in the shops, I feel no sense of obligation to discipline that child or to correct the child because his parents are right there. And because God loves us, he corrects us. He restrains us. He takes us by the hand and he, he applies some pressure so that he get our attention. When God convicts you of sin, is it something you suppress? You try to run from? You try to justify that it's really not wrong? Or do those bad feelings prompt you to honest self-evaluation according to God's word? To take a look and say, has God led me to do this or is this something just I want to do? If we can continue in sin without a sense of shame, without conviction, it may be that for a season God is leaving you alone. Saying, you want to go that way? I'll let you go that way. It's a bitter end. It's an awful place to be where God says, you know, I've talked to him. Let him alone. After David's sin, he prayed in Psalm 51, 10 through 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David cast off restraint when he sinned, but he didn't want to be cast off by God. When he was called out for his sin by Nathan the prophet, he says, I've sinned before God, and he repented. He forsook that sin. We see a very different example in King Saul. King Saul, the Spirit of God was upon him. When he rebelled and he was lifted up with pride, and despite being corrected by Samuel, he, God, it says that he withdrew his spirit from Saul, and he sent a troubling spirit upon him. Saul did not repent for his sin. He sought a musician to soothe and to calm him. It's a very different response. Saul never owned his pride. But they just said, hey, a, a distressing spirit from God's upon you. Let's find a musician so that you can, you can listen to that calming music and feel better. And that just kept, that was a cycle through his life where it, Bad feelings, play the music, and then he's throwing spears at David. And he was, he was a murderous man until his death. God wants us more to be, he wants us more than being just soothed or calm. He wants us to know him. He wants us to seek him. He wants to be restored to fellowship with us. 
David knew he had done shamefully, but he did something admirable in humbling himself before God and seeking him. So the question that came to me was, am I content to feel good when it's God who I need? Saul just wanted to feel good, but we need God. Continue on to chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. The priests and kings in Israel, they were guilty of luring others into sin. The priests were like, hey, bring those sacrifices because they were profiting from them. It says those revolters were deeply involved in slaughter. They were sacrificing animals, hoping to be heard by God, hoping to be blessed and benefited from their service to God. But Samuel said to King Saul, to obey God is better than sacrifice. See, we don't mind sacrificing if we can get what we want. We're happy to make that trade. It could be an expensive trade, but as long as we get what we want, we're content with that deal. But it's not right when it comes to obeying God. Obeying God is better than sacrifice. You could sacrifice your life to God, but unless you repent and obey, then you have no relationship with God. Sacrifice to God, free will offerings to him, those are good and acceptable things, but because the people were in sin and refused to repent, he would not receive them. He would not receive those sacrifices. They were, in addition to sacrificing to God, they were sacrificing to the Baals and the idols. Now, just work with me here. Do you think a wife would be pleased with a $50 gift card from her husband on her anniversary, knowing that same day he had given a prostitute a gold chain and his girlfriend a diamond ring. No. No, I don't think she would appreciate that at all. She's like, oh, thanks, that's so thoughtful. No. She's like, there's the door, buddy. You need to figure out what you want. No sensible wife I know would be pleased with such conduct God was angered and displeased by the way his people prostituted themselves to all these idols. He would rebuke their sin. He wouldn't compliment their gifts, their generosity. He wasn't swayed by pledges of loyalty. He wanted them to repent and just own that they had wandered from him and that they needed him and to seek him. He wanted them, though. He wasn't just wanting stuff from them. He wanted them to know him. And God wants you to know him too. And he wants you to choose him over not just sin, but the good things that he gives you. He wants you to choose him, to choose to spend time with him when you could be doing something else. And not just like I clock in and clock out with God, but I'm with God because he's with me, he's bought me, and I love him. God loves people, even sinners, but God's love is never a justification to sin and to keep sinning. Knowing that God loves us, it should compel us to obeying him and to desiring time with him and to doing the things that please him. Verse 4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. 
With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Verse 4, the rendering of the NIV, I think it helps make the meaning plain. It says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Because they're going after all these idols and remaining in sin, they were not able, they could not return to God, even though they sacrificed herds and flocks to God. It's like they were in darkness, and as long as they remained in darkness, they could sacrifice all the animals they wanted. They could burn as much incense as they wanted. They're still in the dark. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And until they were willing to come out of the darkness and into the light, they were going to remain separated from God until they repented and chose to trust him. They had pride, it says, that was right in God's face. People who looked pious, people who appeared like, that guy's super solid. That guy trusts God. He loves God. Look at all the things he's done. Look at all the things he's given. And God's like, his pride is right in my face, and it's disgusting. I will not accept anything from his hands. They had forgotten or ignored the fact that God knew them. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were wickedly pursuing when they weren't bringing their flocks and offerings to him. And so when they came to sacrifice, they would not find him because he had withdrawn himself. They would stumble in darkness without forgiveness because they would not admit their sin. They would not repent. And God called his people out for treachery. Now, treachery, it's deceit. It's hidden. It's the appearance of being all cool and on someone's side, but really you're undermining them. It's a, this, this loyalty to God was just a, a front for their sin, a cover-up. God's people under the law, he, he cites an example. Under law, they were to marry within their tribe. They were to marry within their own people so that they would raise their children in the fear of God, that they would not adopt the sinful conduct of the neighboring uh, countries. And evidence of their treachery was the, were those pagan children. He says, you've begotten pagan children. We read in other places, they didn't even speak Hebrew. So they couldn't even read the law of God unless they were told. And the people weren't, weren't about following the law. They were just doing according to tradition, according to the wisdom of men. So for their sin, God would withdraw from them and leave them alone without help, without hope. Turn to Song of Songs, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Solomon wrote a play which portrays God as a beloved king and the Shulamite as Israel. We could apply it in that way. So Song of Solomon 5, starting in verse 2. And it's this awesome story where... There was this commoner, this woman, who was all sunburnt from working in the fields. She was a shepherdess. And the king, the prince at that time, comes by and he sees her. And he's like, I, I love you and I want you to spend time with me. So he comes to her house and he, he, he um, courts her. They end up getting married. She becomes the queen. So she goes from the field being all sunburnt and feeling like she's ignorant and a cast off and just, you know, her brothers are kind of rough on her. And, 
But now she's brought into the, the palace, and she is the wife of the king, and she loves him. So in the context of the play, it's late at night. It's a really dewy night. She's just gotten to bed, and her husband, the king, he's knocking at the door. Song of Solomon 5.2. And the Shulamite, she says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. One might think that because of the love that her husband had shown her, that she would be quick to get out of bed. She'd be quick to respond when he says, open up my perfect one. Open up. Hey, it's freezing out here. I'm wet. Open up the door, please. So he's, 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 taught, he's like, have some compassion on me and open that door. Let me in. And she's just full of excuses. She's like, ah, oh, I've just put on my PJs, taken my robe off. Uh, I've just washed. If I walk, my feet will get dirty. So she's delaying. She's thinking in her mind. He keeps knocking. He's like, open up, my dove. Open up the door. And, but the more she thinks about it, she's like, you know, I do want to see him. I, I, it's really not obligation here. She does love him. So she gets up finally, puts those slippers on, puts the robe back on, like, ugh. Goes to the door and opens it up. He's not there. He's like, where'd he go? He had withdrawn himself. The parallel is clear. Israel had done more, though, than just make lame excuses in light of God's love, but they had been treacherous. It was like he knocked on the door, and there were two other men in the bed with her. And he knew what was going on in there when he was knocking on the door. Hey, open up, open up. He was no fool. But because she was occupied, he withdrew himself so that when she started looking for him, she wouldn't find him no matter how hard she looked. Until she put away her lovers, she repented, she couldn't have fellowship with God. And so that's the picture of Israel. Is God to be blamed for withdrawing himself in those conditions? Absolutely not. I imagine Israel at that time doing the equivalent of, guys, you know, one of you under the bed, one of you into the closet. You know, kind of going to the mirror, kind of preening. All right, go to the door, open the door. Okay, his loss, going back to bed and saying, guys, coast is clear. Come on. And that's what Israel was doing. So God withdrew himself. He's like, all right. Friends, we've done this, haven't we? We think we're a prize. We expect that, you know, God should love me. But he's the one who's been so gracious to us. He's the one who's called our name. He's the one who's brought us out of darkness and out of sin and out of destruction, the way we were headed. He does love us, but he also withdraws when we're in sin without repentance. So he can be found if we seek him with our whole heart. If we'll say, you know what? I've broken off those relationships. 
you know, here's my phone. I, I blocked those numbers, but I want nothing to do with them anymore because you are my man. You are my God. Like, Jesus, you are mine, and I love you. I'm not going to go down that road again. I never want to get enslaved in idolatry. Verse 8. Blow the ram's horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud in beth Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among all the tribes of Israel, I have made known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Gebeah, that was the birthplace of King Saul. Ramah, that was the hometown of the prophet Samuel. These historic places, they were legendary, but they would not be spared when God visited his wrath upon the nation for their sin. When that northern kingdom fell before their enemies. And the people were wrong to assume that because the temple was in Judah or because, you know, Ramah and um, Gebeah were such legendary places, they would not also fall in that day. And Ephraim, we see that many times in this uh, book, just to remind you, that's the 10 northern tribes. So Ephraim was the largest tribe. So when he says Ephraim, it's referring to the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes of Israel. And they were, they were beyond the point of no return. Judgment was coming. The land would fall. Uh, and he compared the princes of Judah even to those who removed a landmark. We read in Deuteronomy 27, 17, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. So when he says they're like people who move a landmark, they were under a curse because of sin, and they needed to repent. Uh, and God would pour out wrath like water. It would be like soaking them head to toe. It would run onto the ground. The whole nation would be affected by what was coming. They were, it says, oppressed and broken in judgment because they followed human wisdom and not God's. They were following after idols. And because of this, God says, I'm going to be like a moth to Ephraim and like a, uh, what was it, rottenness to Judah. So moths, have anyone here had a problem with moths? They get in and they, they eat your fabrics. Your clothing puts big holes in them. It makes them unfit to wear. And it's not like you can just fix it so easily because all the material is gone. It's not like when it rips on a seam where you could just sew it again. It's big holes just in places where you can't fix. You have to patch it. It's unsightly. And just imagine this rotting garment. He says, you're just going to decay. But then the rottenness, rotten, the Bible talks about rottenness in the bones, like a bone disease. So you've got these rags on the outside and you're decaying on the inside. It's not a pretty picture at all. Proverbs 14.30, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. So he's like, you're going to be destroyed inside and out because of sin, because of the choices that you've made, your refusal to admit your need and to come to me. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. 
Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. The lack of faith in God, trust in him, was evidenced by what they did when they were in pain, when they saw their wound or they saw their sickness, when they knew they were in trouble. It says, you guys went to bargain with the Assyrians. You tried to make a deal with them rather than coming to me, who can actually heal you and cure you of the problem. Like I can rid you of the source of the problem. Matthew Henry, he wisely observed, carnal hearts in time of trouble see their sickness but do not see the sin that is the cause of it. Isn't that true? In our lives, it's way easier for me to describe my symptoms to you than what's actually made me sick or how I got sick in the first place. I can theorize, oh yeah, I was on a plane. But they go, do you know exactly what virus or bacteria you're harboring right now in your body? I'm like, no, I just have a runny nose, a fever. Like I know I have a fever, But I can't tell you why I have a fever. I know there's an infection somewhere, but I don't know exactly how it got in my body, how to fix it. Ephraim and Judah, they made the mistake of seeing their sickness and wounds, but they didn't seek the cure. They just wanted their symptoms to stop. That's what they wanted. They just wanted relief. They wanted relief from the symptoms. They didn't care about the cure. Because God was the only one who could cure them. He's the only one who could heal them. And you know, he's the only one who can cure us. He's the only one who can heal us of our illnesses. And we can care more about physical healing than being restored to relationship with God. You know, that cold really bums us out. But we don't get as bummed out that I haven't heard from God this week. Like all week, I really haven't heard heard anything. I don't know what he wants me to do. Or I don't know what little tidbit of wisdom that I've gleaned because I've spent time in his presence like we can just forget right this is our this is our condition we are forgetful we are self-reliant we are proud we need God and so God will even let us have a cold because it's even something so minor that will make us like oh lord make it stop and uh but will we seek him do we know we need him when we don't have a cold we're feeling pretty good So God said, I'm going to be like a lion to Ephraim. I'm going to tear him in pieces like a young lion to the house of Judah. A young lion, they don't have the strength or the skill yet to devour the prey, to actually kill. So they kind of play with their food, you know, their prey. They play with it a bit and then just take off, kind of learning the ropes of of what it means. So he's like, I'm going to be like a young lion to them. I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm going to return to my place. They'll seek me in their trouble that's when they'll look for me. When they're really hurting, that's, and he knew it. That's when their attention will be on me is when they're in pain and when they're having a hard time. God was patient. He would return to his place until they acknowledged their offense, until they were broken for their sin and returned to him. See, God, I love that. He says, they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God wants to be known. He wants people to know they need him. 
And he desires people to want to seek him. Like he wants to be sought. We're the sought and called out ones, right? He's called our name and he wants us to call his name. He wants us to seek him out because of his love for us. And in his wisdom, he does the thing that universally grabs our attention. He allowed pain, affliction, lack, so that they, in their affliction, they would turn to God because in their prosperity, they turned away from God. And if we hear someone struggling, what's our knee-jerk reaction? Oh, we got to make that suffering stop. See, God, he is with us in suffering, and he uses suffering to draw us to him. God didn't want to be relegated to just in case of an emergency status. He wanted to have a relationship with people. He wants to have a relationship with people who love him back. And that's why Jesus went to the cross for Jew and Gentile alike. So by grace through faith, we could know God. We could have a relationship with the living God. We were cut off from God, dead in sins, destined to eternity in hell. But the shed blood of Jesus, it cleanses us from all sin when we trust in him and repent. I don't think I'll ever get over the awesome truth of Romans 5.8 that says, but God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were in bed with sin, but he called our name, he came to us, and he brought us out of that slavery and that bondage. I'm aware of my resemblance to Ephraim and Judah, that Jesus died for me, but I don't always live for him. I can be like the Shulamite who on those cold mornings or damp nights is reluctant to get out of bed, who just is busy with things, makes lame, lame excuses, and um, would rather stay comfortable when God says, get up, come open this door. You open it, come in yourself. God asks us to do something, shouldn't we do it? Shouldn't we do it? And sometimes I don't even notice when God's withdrawn himself because I'm so busy with what I'm doing. I have these, my own pursuits or selfish ambitions, things that I am feeling like doing or want to do. When, and so I don't even notice that God's withdrawn. Praise the Lord that Jesus is risen. He stands at the door and knocks. And I want you to turn to Revelation 3. Starting in verse 19, there was a, a lukewarm church in Laodicea. And he says, you guys think you're pretty cool. You think you have everything you need, but you don't realize that you're blind and naked and needy. You think you have need of nothing, but you really need me. And so Jesus speaking, he stands at the door and knocks. So Revelation 3, 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, there be, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. There's a lot of things that we can be zealous and passionate about, but he says, be zealous in your repentance. Be zealous in repentance. Are we zealous to repent from sin that Jesus died to cleanse us of? In faith in God's word, believe that Jesus is at the door right now and he is knocking and he is calling out your name. 
And he's saying, open up to me. You've opened up to a lot of things, but you open up to me now. Come out of hiding, out of sin where you've sought comfort. Do you have in your heart a desire to commune with the living God? Do you want to know Jesus? Because today is the day to know him and to know him in a more profound and deep way than you ever have before. Because where we gather in his name, there he is in the midst, and he knocks at your heart. Even if you've been lukewarm, even if you have forgotten him as Israel, he says, in your affliction, they will surely seek me. And the Bible says we will find him if we seek him with our whole hearts. So may our hunger for the presence of God outweigh our hope even for healing, forgiveness, or salvation, that we would have our hope and our desire in him because we need him. So we will have a time of communion now. And the bread that we will eat, it represents the body of Christ broken for us. The, the cup is the shed blood that washes us of our sin. And these are just symbols that Jesus has told us to partake of together, uh, to proclaim his death till he comes, that demonstration of his love, and that this eating and drinking is a sign of what God has done in us spiritually, that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, we have partaken of him, his spirit now lives inside of us, and we are his, we are one. Just like this becomes part of our bodies when we eat it, and it goes into us and gives us strength. So Jesus, I love that he appeared to his disciples in that locked room, and now he is with us now in our midst And let's be those who are zealous in repentance and who seek him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for your love that pursues us. That you demonstrated your love while we were yet sinners. Jesus died for us. Thank you for bringing us out of sin and out of just such corruption, Lord, and giving us new life and forgiveness, giving us a hope that does not fade away. Lord, I pray that you would show us just your, how, the beauty of your righteousness, the wisdom of your word, and our desperate need for you, Lord. Help us not to, to relegate you to just in case and a, a backup plan, but that we would have a relationship with the living God that we would love you as you love us. So Lord, as we enter into this time to partake of your uh, communion together, I pray our hearts would commune with yours, that you would just break us for our sin, that we would be repentant, and that we would be restored to fellowship with you again. That it wouldn't be based upon how we feel today, but upon the truth of your word, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that you look upon us and you say, there is no blemish in you. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. We praise and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as the team leads us in a song,